The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 51, page 867. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives these child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. So what makes a great church? What do you think? What makes a great church? There's a lot of ways different people would answer that question. You might think about uh, how the message adds meaning to your life, or you might think about ingredients of the community, or you might think about theological carefulness or, or passion and power, but I want you to notice what comes into your mind when I ask you that question. What makes a great church? What's the first thing that hits your mind and you're like, oh, I need this? It's not an easy question to answer, you couldn't answer it with just one thing, most likely, but I do think there is one thing where if it's not part of the answer, you won't have a great church. You could have the raddest music, the most interesting message, the most passionate moment, and if you don't have this, Jesus would say, I think, you don't have a great church, you'll never be a great church. And so, hey, listen, I think you're all, you all are great, okay? I really do. And I think... I think this aspect, I see this in you, I hope you see it in me. But as we ask this question, what, in Jesus' eyes, what would make us together great in his opinion? There's this answer here that we need to really land our plane on and have everybody think about it, taste it, you need to look in your own heart, you need to look in your own mind, and we need to work together to say, let's be this, okay? Because without this, we won't be great in his eyes. So what is it? I'm gonna tell you in a second. A little bit of background first. We're in Luke 9, right? We've been studying through the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter nine. There's a big transition here I want you to see. It's important for our study and what we're seeing today. The first eight chapters of Luke could be summarized like this. The Christ has come, okay? So we've been looking at Jesus' birth. We've been listening to the message of the angels. We've been watching Jesus' life. Incredible compassion and truth and power. The Christ has come, Luke has been telling us. He's here. Chapter 9, it starts to change, and here's how it changes. Instead of this idea, the Christ has come, it becomes this idea, the Christ is going. So if you were here last week, you remember Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, they were talking about his departure, his exodus. Look down at verse 51 of our passage today. What did it him to be what? Taken up. He set his face to go 
to Jerusalem. So the Christ has come amazing, and then this shocking reality, and Jesus is trying to get it into his disciples' minds. Jesus has come to go. What do you mean? The Christ has come to die, and he will go to Jerusalem to do that. And the next chapters 9 to 19 in Luke is this road to Jerusalem where the Christ goes to die. It's incredible. But with that emphasis change on Christ has come now, Christ is going. He's going to die. With that emphasis change comes a huge emphasis for Luke on what he calls discipleship. Discipleship. Chapters 9 to 19 emphasize discipleship. So it's this question, what does it mean for you? What does it mean to, for me to follow the Christ who has come to go to the cross? What does it mean to be a Christian, to live the Christian life? Jesus kind of summed up his view of discipleship back in verse 23. Let's remind ourselves of what he said in verse 23. Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is so different than most, I don't want to judge too harshly. This is so different than I think a lot of what America hears about Christianity. You heard if you just had a moment of experience and you prayed a prayer once, that's the end of the story. Listen, I want you to have a moment. I want you to pray the prayer, but that's not the end. That's the beginning. And Jesus says, if you want to come after me, anyone, this, anyone can come, but this is the only way to come. Deny yourself. It's the message opposite from Americana, right? Americana, please yourself. Jesus, deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. It's incredible. What does this mean? Well, dying to yourself means you're dying to your self-rule. You're not your king anymore. Jesus is your king. You're dying to your self-righteousness. You're not looking to yourself to prove you're, you're standing with God. You're, look, you're humbling yourself. You're looking to him. He's everything to you. It means you're totally his with no bargains. He is your life now. He's the one you live for. So are, are any of you like me, do you ever wonder what that looks like practically? Do you, ever, do you ever simmer at home over like, am I doing that? What does that mean to do that, to deny myself daily? I really appreciate the, these last parts of chapter nine because I think Jesus is giving his disciples pictures of what self-denial is supposed to look like when you follow him. When he's your life and you're denying yourself, He's training his disciples, and today we see one of these elements that Jesus says, if you want to be great, you have to have this. If you don't have this, not great. This is what you need to be my disciples. So it's part of Jesus' answer. What makes a great church? Here's his answer. You know what it is? Humility. Humility is the answer. So I want us as a church, don't, don't we want to be great together in Jesus' eyes? Don't we wanna do this together? We need to marinate on the idea of humility this morning. So this is what I wanna do with this. I wanna remember what it is biblically. I wanna see, if I can, five reasons. Can you handle that? You can do that, right? 
Five reasons why humility is both essential and beautiful. So you have to have it. Oh, man, and it's great when you have it, okay? So I want to remember what humility is. Five reasons humility is so essential to a church, and then I want to see the source of humility. But I got to let you know, like, as I talk about humility here, I have never made the cover of Humility Magazine, okay? I tried to write in. They wouldn't even publish my article, my article was like, why I'm so humble and that makes me great. They turned it down. I am not the professional on humility. I have to fight my pride constantly and sometimes it wins. And I think if we're honest with one another, none of us are like the uh, humility, you know, poster child. Okay? This is a war. Self-denial, you got to take up your cross daily. Pride is always like you know, coming back for another round. So this is something we need to do together, marinate on it together, and oh, may we grow as a great church as this is fostered in us. So first of all, what is humility? What is humility? I would like to summarize it like this. Humility is the honest assessment of who you are before God. Humility is the honest assessment of who you are before God. See, if you, if you make an honest assessment of who you are before any of us? That won't take you anywhere good. We're going to see that. That won't, that, won't take you, that won't take you to humility. It'll take you some sort of pride or insecurity or self-centered. It's not going to be good. Humility is going to be an honest assessment of who you are before God. So I hope this helps. Let me, let me tell you something I was reading about this week. I am not a scientist. Just a disclaimer. If you are a scientist, you're going to be like, Matt, you're not a scientist. I want to humble myself before you. <laughs> I'm not a scientist. But I read this. I think it's trustworthy. Just... Just ponder this. Did you know that for life to be possible in the universe, the universe needs both large and small stars? Did you know that? I didn't know that. The reason we need large stars is because there are elements that are essential for life that only large stars provide. But you also need small stars, like our beautiful sun. Because small stars give you kind of that faithful radiance that can warm your planet every morning and not burn you up. So we need large stars. We need small stars. That to have both large and small stars, you need two forces to be working together. One is the electromagnetic force. And the other is the gravitational force. I've heard of that one. I know that one. Don't jump off cliff. Okay. You need these two forces, but you also need a ratio between these two forces that is nearly infinitely delicate. So here's what scientists are saying according to the book that I read. This ratio was formed in that kind of creation, big bangish moment. Let there be. The ratio was formed. And scientists say that if that ratio had been different by one part in 10 to the 40th power, there wouldn't be the large and small stars we need to exist. Now, trying to wrap your mind around electromagnetic force, gravitational force, and the fine-tuning in the ratio between the two that was established in the half a second where it all went, ha. Ah. That's a little bit too big for my britches, right? The illustration the scientists gave on the 
the chances of this working just right. I mean, I can't, I had to like double check my zeros, you know, when I'm typing this in. One, two, three, four. Um, 10 to the 40th power. Here's what you need, okay? Here's, here's your lottery ticket chances on this. Take the continent of North America and stack up dimes all over the continent, all the way to the moon, which is like 230,000 miles. And do that one billion times. That's a lot of dimes. One of those dimes is red. Send out your friend with a blindfold on to pick the exact dime. That's a, that's a lottery ticket you don't want to buy, right? That is not going to happen. That is absolutely impossible. The power and wisdom it would take to make and create and sustain and design and fine-tune such a thing is beyond my comprehension. Now read Psalm 147, verse 4. He determines the number of the stars and gives to all of them their names. No wonder, verse 5. What is the Lord? Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Why am I telling you this? Because I want you to see how ridiculous you are when you are prideful before God. Okay? Humility comes from an honest assessment of who we are before God. And part one of that is he's the creator. And I am totally dependent on him. I am totally dependent on the creator. He is so great. So great. Mind-blowingly great. I got to humble myself before the one who's made me. But there's a second thing in here that humbles us. An honest assessment of who we are before God. Look at verse six. The Lord lifts up, who? The humble. And he casts the wicked to the ground. So the one who's in charge of forces and stars knows you and is paying attention to your pride. And the one who's in charge of the stars, if you're humble, he will lift you up. And if you're prideful, in this corner, the one who made the stars, and in that corner, you, okay? Good luck with that, okay? We're not only humbled as creatures, we're humbled as sinners. We're humbled as sinners. The one who's made the stars is righteous, is just, has ethical passions. And we don't match up to that. We need to humble ourselves. And this has been a huge theme in Luke, hasn't it? This has been a huge theme in Luke. We've seen the humble. It doesn't matter what their past is like. The humble, Jesus receives them. He lifts them up. Tax collectors, prostitutes, it doesn't matter. And the prideful men, they're out. There's a wall. Uh, we're going to see this one day. We ever get there, Luke 18. There Jesus gives an illustration of the kind of heart God receives. And it's a inter really interesting illustration because the first guy praying is a religious leader. And he's like, Lord, I thank you that I'm so holy and wonderful and awesome. 
And the next guy over who's praying, he's got a jaded past, made lots of mistakes. And look, look how Jesus concludes this illustration, Luke 18, 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, and what's he saying? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What's his only hope? Mercy. He's humbled. And look at Jesus' conclusion, verse 14. I tell you, this man, this man, the one with the bad past who's humbled, this man went down to his house justified, right with God, rather than the other. The religious leader who was self-righteous and prideful in his own goodness was not right with God. And then Jesus' final statement here. For everyone who what? Exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. My friends, what do we want to be? Humble. And the way to do that is to have an honest assessment of who we are before God as creator and as the righteous judge. And you, you saw the promises, right? If, if you humble yourself, he'll lift you up. He'll exalt you. So it's an invitation. Come and be lifted up. Come and receive grace. Come and be great. That's what God is saying. So I want to see now five ways in our text today that humility is essential like we need this so badly, and it's also so beautiful. Okay, are you ready? So let's go down to four, verse, verse 46 in our text today. We're talking about Jesus' disciples, and oh my goodness, right? These are the disciples, right? These are the heroes. Verse 46, don't you love this? An argument arose among them as to which of them was the what? <laughs> I mean, Really? And what's so funny is it's right after Jesus tells them he's going to die on a cross. I mean, how like, you know, do you have to be? I'm going to die on a cross. Okay. Hey, did you know I'm better than you? What's going on? Well, listen, if you think about it in context what's happening in Luke, these people have been amazingly privileged. They've been given Jesus' power to heal the sick and cast out demons. It's real. They've done this in cities. They have been given inside information into the news of the kingdom, personal training and discipleship from Jesus that they have had uniquely. And they have seen things. Some of them, we saw it last week, right? Were on the mountain with him when his glory was physically manifested. These are true and real things that they have experienced. And what is the temptation for them? as they see and do and know these wonderful, true, real things. Pride. Is what they know true? Yeah. Is what they've done amazing and real? Yeah. Is what they've seen glorious? Yeah. And what's the tendency all of a sudden? Pride at what I know. Pride in what I've done. Pride in what I've seen to the point where they're arguing about it. You guys, you can have right theology, you can have works of charity, you can have amazing skills, miracles, visions of glory, and be rancid with pride. Watch out, watch out. 
And you see what pride brings. First of all, pride brings comparison. 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 Do you see what they're doing? What are they arguing about? Well, I, I don't even know how this conversation goes. I healed two, two sick people. What'd you get? Seven. I got to go up on the mountain and see it. You didn't see it? How many people did you had come? Oh, I only had that many. Hmm. What are they doing? They're comparing. They're arguing about who's greatest. Now we, okay, we've been to church enough times. We would never argue about who's greatest. Explicitly anyway. Okay? But in your mind, in your heart, I dare you to look. Who are you comparing yourself with? And then why are you having that argument inside to justify yourself that you're just as good or better? This happens all the time. It happens all the time. We start measuring ourselves by others and we're making arguments about why we're better and it hurts and, it, and we, we have comparison and oh, and they have this, and, but I did that and, and then we're also like, but, but wait, I know more or I have more of the spirit or I serve more or I've suffered more or I'm more faithful or I give more or I somethinged more and that led me to a sense of entitlement where I deserve more, I should be recognized more, I should have something more and all of a sudden this comparison leads to division. They're comparing themselves with one another and now what are they doing? They're arguing. Those who represent Jesus to the world are arguing about who's the greatest. And it happens in churches all the time. It happens in Christians all the time. And a church like this will be a dumpster fire. It'll be so ugly, so wicked to be judging, jealous, separating church, right? What do we need to do? Let's be humble. Humility is essential. Otherwise, we're comparing and we're dividing. But think. Think about it on the other side. Think about it on the other side. Look at Philippians 2. Such a, just such a powerful passage on humility. If Philippians 2, verses 2 to 4. Listen to this. I'll let it be its own application. Listen to this. Paul writes in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, right? He's saying, be unified. Be unified. Verse three. Do, what's the next word? Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. What just happened to the argument about who's the greatest? It doesn't matter what I am. You're, you're important. Count others as more significant as yourselves. Verse four, let but to the interests of others. I, I praise God for the way that's real here in our church. But let's press in for more. Let's press in for more and be humble because pride brings division, humility brings unity. Pride brings division, humility brings unity. Next one, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Uh, isn't it kind of ominous that Jesus knows the reasoning in their hearts? Guess what else he knows? The reasoning in 
your heart, my heart. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. He knows the reason. Why is he bringing a child? You see that? Why did, why did he bring in a child? Here's the main reason. They and their culture did not see children as particularly valuable. A, com, uh, a commentary I'm reading talks about how big status was in the Greco-Roman world. They had very clear, like, layers of status and how a leader, how powerful or how important you are. And so then in your social relationships, like who you had over, you would want to have over people at least equal or better. And somebody who's lower status, they want to have you over, you'd be like, eh, I'm busy, got to clean up my purse, you know, something like that. Somebody of higher status invites you, you're like, what can I bring? When can I come? And so there's this finagling on status and so for the ancient world, to G, for Jesus to bring forth a child, what status does a child have in the ancient world for greatness? What, what are they going to give you? What are they going to offer you? Nothing. Zero. So he pulls in, in that culture's view, the lowest person. Just to illustrate this, let me show you again what's in Luke 18. This happens in a later event. The disciples don't learn here. Just like us, we need to hear things again and again. Look at verse Luke 18, 15. In this story, it says, Now they were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, what did they do? They rebuked them. Why? These little children aren't important. Jesus is too busy for that. Bring us leaders, people with money. Get the, get the poor nobodies out of here. And what does Jesus say? Verse 16. Jesus called them to him saying, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. I am all up into the children coming to me. And even more than that, I'm all up into all the nobodies coming to me. Bring them all. That's why this book is, we're calling it the upside down kingdom, right? It's upside down. Jesus is turning everything upside down. But here's what we see pride doing Pride rejects people who are different than you or who you perceive as less valuable for whatever reason. Pride rejects. I'm not going to associate with them. So again, you got you to apply this for yourself. Who are you tempted to reject? Who are you tempted to reject? And you might say, hey, I love the poor. That's great. Do you reject the rich? I love the needy and the vulnerable. Great. Do you reject the people you think of as self-righteous? Who, who do you reject? People in a different political persuasion? You done with them? You writing them off? People from a different ethnicity? People with a different personality put together? Just look. Who are you tempted to say, no, not for me. I won't, I won't be with them. And Jesus is saying that's pride when we reject in that way. It's pride, whereas humility brings, look at this word, Jesus, knowing the reason of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. It's so amazing. What a picture of the gospel. The child who has no social value or greatness in that culture. Where does Jesus put him? By his side. What's the uh, most exalted position in the universe? The right hand of Jesus, okay? Who, who's in the cat, the honored seat? What a picture of the gospel. He's done this so many times. The people who are unworthy. Hey, let me put you, sit next to me at dinner. Come right up close. It's, 
And, and this word receives, oh, it's so rich. It's so much more than, I don't know what I was thinking when I read it. It's so much more than just receives. It has the idea of hospitality. So you're consistently welcoming someone into your space and you're putting them at your table and you're serving them and you're having connection with them and you're honoring them and showing them value. So you're taking the one who's the outsider and bringing them close. And Jesus says, that's what humility does. It brings welcome. It brings welcome. It serves humbly. What a picture. What do you think is more beautiful? A church is rejecting people based on whatever, you know, stratus, some human sort of distinction. No, you're not for me. You ever been to churches like that? Super cliquish. Can't, not welcome. Do we, do we want to be that? Who, what do we want to be? We want to be the people who receive uh, blatantly anyone who comes near and shows them that hospitable, welcoming service and love. You know, I was so thrilled that this text popped up for Serve Sunday and volunteers, okay? You realize I'm not smart enough to arrange all these things this way. We started doing Luke in like January or something, and if you don't know me very well if you think I could doctor that mess up like this, okay? But this lands, you know, receive one another, Jesus says, and it, this word is service. And it's a humble kind of regular faithful service. So I want to take a minute right now, number one. And if you have been serving us in these regular faithful ways, I just want the rest of us to give you a hand and thank you for serving the church as a volunteer. Thank you so much. And then I want to say again, I'm asking you to keep humbly serving one another. It's just, it's tedious. It's like hospitality. What does Peter say? Offer hospitality to one another without, you remember if you've read it? Grumbling. Because he knows, okay? You gotta do it again. All right, what comes out? You gotta do it again? You gotta clean up again? Set it up again? Put it out again? Serve him again? Welcome him again? Yeah. And what does it take to keep serving faithfully? Humility. And what will stop you from serving faithfully? Pride, because you start comparing on who, mm, let's not do that, let's not be that. Pride rejects, humility welcomes. Pride rejects, humility welcomes. So we've seen so far, pride brings division, humility brings unity. Pride brings rejection, humility brings welcome. Next one, pride brings opposition, humility brings grace. Look at verse 48, you guys, Suck on this for a second. Marinate on this line for a second. Who's talking in verse 48? Help me out here. Jesus is talking. What do you think of him? Is your estimation of him high? Are you impressed? Are you, are you amazed? Jesus, look at verse 48. Whoever receives, again, hospitality, welcome, service, acceptance. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Let it land. What an honor it would be to make coffee for Jesus. I'm assuming he likes it. He's perfect. He's got to like coffee. 
He made coffee. Can anybody argue with this? He obviously likes coffee. Easy. To make coffee for Jesus, to put food out for Jesus, to clean up for Jesus. I mean, wouldn't you just be happy if you could do that for Jesus? You can. It's when you do it for one another. I just, just dropped on me. Oh my word. I get, to, I get to teach the Bible, not to Jesus, for Jesus. You, this is what local church is all about. We, you, us, in the people we can reach out to outside of our community and in one another, this is how you touch and you taste in Jesus. And Jesus says, if you receive this child in my name, you receive me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. This is how you serve the Father, the one who puts the stars together, is ready to eat with you as you eat with one another. He's ready to be with you as you serve one another. If you take this into heart, do you see what happens? You're humbled by that. And it brings grace, this grace of being able to serve and enjoy and love Jesus like this. But flip it over. Flip it over. Okay, so if, if you receive this one, you receive me. Okay, now flip it over. If you reject this one, if you say, no, you're not good enough for me, get out of here, get out of my space, get out of my time. If you reject this one, who are you rejecting? Don't reject Jesus. And don't reject the one who sent him. Yeah, I remember this line, James 4, 6. This idea is all through scripture, but James 4, 6, James just drops it to us real simple. God, what? Opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. You want grace? You want his undeserved love? You want to swim in it, roll in it, live in it, act it out? Humble yourself before the Lord by serving and loving and welcoming and embracing one another. If you want God to oppose you, be prideful. <laughs> What have we seen so far? Humility comes from an honest assessment. It's an honest assessment about who you are before God as creator, as holy. Pride brings division, humility brings unity. Pride brings rejection, humility brings welcome. Pride receives God's opposition while humility enjoys God's grace. Are you convinced yet that we wanna be humble? Well, if you're not, I got a couple more for you, okay? Look what happens in verse 49. Oh, this is such an important, important little nugget. Verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we, what? Tried to stop him. Why? He does not follow with us. Now, just pay careful attention. Not many words. They're all important. What's the fella doing? Casting out demons. In Luke, that's part of the work of the kingdom, right? That's part of what Jesus gave uniquely to his disciples to do. He's doing it. And if you remember from last week, what were some of the disciples struggling with? This very thing. So somebody outside their tribe is actually doing something they were supposed to be doing better than they are. And he's doing it in Jesus' name. So that means, what do you know about this, this cat? 
He honors Jesus. He respects Jesus. He's a believer. He's a real disciple. But John's all messed up because he doesn't follow with us. And here's what we learn. Pride gets sectarian. You okay with that word, sectarian? It's the idea of my tribe or my way of following Jesus is the only way. And church people, this just kills the church of Jesus Christ. It's poison. It's corrosive. It's so terrible. Jesus is happy with a diversity that evidently we don't quite understand. We can get so loyal to our own tribe or version of Christianity. And listen, it's, it's a slippery slope. We get excited about what we believe and how we do things. Listen, uh, so if I, you were going to give me labels, like for me, I am traditionally evangelical. I believe certain things about the Bible and who Jesus is and what he's done. I'm happy with that. I am uh, traditionally reformed in my view of how the Bible works. I'm not ashamed of that at all. Love to talk to you about it if you want to talk about these things. That's who I am, okay? And then I live that out in what? This uh, Southern California way with you guys. Our own personalities and our place and our space and we, and we work it out in this way, okay? Are we the only way to be Christian? Are we the only way to follow Jesus? Are there people out there who maybe, okay, I'll be honest with you. I think their view of scripture is a little, eh, on sometimes, but they're doing other things that we should be doing better than we are? Go ahead and say, yes, yeah, that's true. Uh-huh, that's right. Here it is in the book. And John's like, you gotta stop, man, you're wrong. The Greek here is like he kept after him. Stop, you're wrong, stop, you're wrong. And you think of the discernment blog people. Listen, we have to be theologically careful. Don't hear me saying that. We have to be. We have to try to be faithful to the scriptures. But then all of a sudden you get one little thing that one guy said once about a thing and we're all like, Whoosh. you know, like just rip it down. Rip it down. It's this infighting within people who love Jesus. And it's pride that leads to being sectarian. Our way's the only way. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Pride leads to sectarianism. Humility leads to, what word do you want to put on it? Benevolence or generosity or an openness. Now listen, don't hear me wrong, right? I'm the first one in line to be like, what you believe, your theology, understanding God's word, God's word as God's word, that's essential business. I, am, I care about that very much. But within Christianity, good Christianity, those who love Jesus and follow him, there's diversity. Do we have space to be like, go team? Especially when they're doing things better in some ways than we are. And we might be doing some things better in some ways than they are. Jesus says, don't stop him for the one who's not against you is for you. Look at the line as Jesus draws it. Here's the line, Luke eleven twenty three. 23. This is what Jesus says. Whoever is not with me is against me. It's not our tribe that's the everything of following Jesus. It's Jesus who's the everything. Jesus is the everything. Do you see the difference? 
Do not stop him, for the one who's not against you is for you, but whoever is not with me is against me. That's how Jesus writes this down. Jesus is our everything. So that's the point. Pride will be sectarian. Humility will show benevolence or generosity to those who love and follow Jesus but do it a little different. Don't you wanna be that way? Do you wanna build a moat around the church and high walls and put, you know, paint like, our way's the only way. Die, sinners, <laughs> you know? Or do you wanna be like, we have the right thing and like we wanna emphasize the main things and keep secondary things which are important, know them, think about them, but keep them secondary and then leave room for those who love Jesus and follow him and, and not be sectarian and prideful about it. Let's be that way. Two more and I'll be done. Are you convinced yet? What do you wanna be, church? Humble. Humble. Pride brings worthlessness while humility is great. I asked you what makes a great church. Let's, Jesus will tell you, verse 48. Whoever receives a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. A prideful church is a failure. A prideful con- Christian is a contradiction. Humility is literal and actual greatness. Don't read this like you shouldn't have ambition. Don't read it like you shouldn't be striving for something beautiful. It's an invitation to, to something that's great. Jesus wants you to be great. He wants us to be a great church, but there's a way to do it, and it's an emphasis on humility. We'll continue that passage in Philippians 2. Look at Philippians 2, 5. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is what? It's yours in Christ Jesus. It's already yours. Here it is. It's set up for you. It's yours as a church. Verse six. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is greatness. You remember we talk about God being the creator, making the stars. What's it like for Jesus eternally the son of God? And he humbles himself to become human. How does the one who does force ratios for the universe become and then be nursed by his 14-year-old mom with the livestock? Humility like you can't fathom, and yet don't you just go, oh, you are great. And then you take it even further. He becomes obedient to the point of death on a cross, you know, we think of the, the pain that goes with the cross. Oh, and it's undescribable. But there's also a shame aspect that goes with the cross. In that world, crucifixion is only for the worst of the worst of the worst. That's why Jews couldn't even believe that Jesus was the Messiah, simply because Messiahs can't die on a cross. It's too gross. It's too ugly. It's too shameful. And Jesus humbled himself to the point of obedience to death on a cross. 
across such humility. And church, doesn't your heart go, that's great. The fact that he's simultaneously who he is as the son of God who goes to a cross for us. I dare you to look at the cross because that's where you're gonna find humility. I dare you to look at the cross. Nobody can go stare at the cross and think, dang, I'm great. What do you deserve as you look at the cross? I don't care how many times you've been to church, how much theological knowledge you know, how many works of charity you've done, how many visions you had, how many anythings. Left to yourself, that's what you deserve. You know, Jesus didn't get grounded for you. You know what I'm saying? He went to the cross for you. That's what it took. That's what it took. That humbles us. That brings us, who can stand before that? We're all on our knees. Who can stand? See it. But don't just see what you deserve on the cross. Keep looking and be amazed that he's there for you in your place. How loved are you as you look at the cross? How loved are you? How loved are you? Given what you deserve, I deserve the cross. How loved are you that it's not you there, it's him. He's there as a substitute in your place. He's taking upon himself God's just wrath for every nastiness, every piece of entitlement, every piece of comparison, every piece of self-promotion and puffing up and insults on others. He's there paying for our pride on the cross. And when you see the Son of God on the cross and you, you taste it, guess what's coming next? Humility. You're worse than you thought, but you're more loved than you ever dreamed. You're worse than you thought, but you're more loved than you ever dreamed. And out of that comes this humility and this confidence together. And it'll form the kind of church we are. It'll form the kind of church we are. A good friend was telling me, he was putting something together, I never saw it. He goes, well, I, I appreciate it. Kind of got used to how we emphasize the cross all the time. We emphasize the gospel. And then I thought, man, we're one of the most welcoming churches I've ever been to. Maybe it's that constant diet on the cross that helps us be humble. Don't you want more? What makes us great, church? Yeah, don't, don't get lost in uh, the smoke and lights of Americana Christianity. What makes a church great? It's humility. It is humility. It's an honest assessment of who we are before God and seeing what he's done for us at the cross that changes just the culture of the way we view ourselves and treat one another. We don't wanna be divisive and comparing and subversive. We wanna be receiving, serving, blessing, and it comes from that humility that we see in Jesus Christ, what he's done for us on the cross. That's what makes us great in his eyes. And guess what? His eyes are the only eyes that matter. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. 
For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.